Well, today I want to talk to you about depression. It's a complex topic, not least because there are almost an infinite number of degrees of depression. There are as many different experiences and stories of depression as there are people. And often when we're in depression, you know this, if you've had a season, a dark season of the soul, you know that sometimes you can be convinced that no one knows what you're feeling. And you feel like your friends, your wife's, your husband's suggestions for a solution are trite and useless and they don't apply to you. I know those feelings firsthand. At the end of 2007, after all of our Christmas services were done, I went home and I knew that I wasn't going to be going to work for a while. I wasn't planning to quit. I just wasn't going. I didn't care. I couldn't go. Felt like I hit an impenetrable wall. So I wrote our elders some bullet points like this. I said that I felt as though I'd been at an emotional, physical, and spiritual breaking point for about a year. I told them that I felt constant anxiety, heaviness, cloudiness, joylessness. I think maybe the best description of what I was feeling was emotionless, not even depression. Seems like depression would have been sadder than what I was feeling. I just felt numb. I told him that for the previous five months, I'd barely slept, usually about three hours a night. Just couldn't sleep. An hour and a half at the beginning of the sleep, and then up almost all night, maybe another hour at the end. I had aches in my joints and bones, like I was about to get a really bad cold or flu, and then it just would never come. My doctor told me, goes to our church, Dr. Tim Grenemeyer, dear friend and a good doctor, he told me my adrenals were stuck on on that whole fight or flight response I was fighting and flighting I was stuck on on and wouldn't shut off I'd been pushing for too long pushing too hard I felt like my plate if you use that analogy of your plate the things on it are your responsibilities and tasks I felt like my plate kept getting smaller and smaller took less and less for me to feel like my plate was full and that I was overwhelmed I told the elders that I think I had been fighting for joy in the midst of it all. Not perfectly, of course, but sincerely. I was exercising at the time. I was eating right, thanks to my wife. I was constantly trying to fix this, what was going on in some new way. But after more than a year of trying to to fight it, to fight the dark clouds, I, I felt worse. felt more depressed emotionless, numb, all the time. All I knew was that the instrument through which I minister, not my voice, but my soul, was broken. So I didn't preach for six weeks. Even after that, I eased back into my other responsibilities one at a time. Through it all, our our elders were just amazing. Dear, caring shepherds of my soul, Had I been at another church and under different elders, I'm not sure I'd be in ministry right now. 
there were many things that I learned in that season. Some physical, some practical, some, well, a whole lot of spiritual ones. I still have days of clouds and darkness. I still have to fight, fight for joy, just like you do. I have to preach to myself, just like you do. I have to keep watch on my thoughts and emotions and start to go after them hard when I see them heading down the wrong path. I know my body's more fragile than uh, most other people, and so I have to pay attention to that. That's part of my fight. But my point in bringing this up is not to go through all of what I learned. Uh, If you're interested, I'd be glad to sit down with you and tell you everything I learned, both for the diagnosis and prescription for my soul. But I bring up this season of my darkest days for me to say that I do know a little something about this issue of depression. My struggle with depression may not be as bad as yours, I'm not saying that in the least, but I certainly know something about how complicated depression can be, how how complicated that relationship between the physical and the spiritual can be. It's not clear where one stops and the other one starts. I know something of the senselessness of depression. I know something of how depression is remarkably inconsolable and senseless. The sincere advice of friends sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Just, what? I don't know. I'm not listening. Whatever you're saying, I'm sure it makes sense to somebody. Not me. And then bitterness grows, right? And then you further retreat from people because they're annoying. And you bend in on yourself and you learn something about the painful black of inward focus. The inescapable vacuum of constant self-focus. You know what? God knows that too. And so do many saints that wrote in the Bible. And so that's where we turn this morning, to the Bible, to see the suffering of one of his saints. Turn with me to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, right in the middle of your Bibles. We looked at these two psalms, possibly one psalm originally, but we'll just say two psalms. We looked at these two psalms a couple of weeks ago. And I said then that these two psalms are unique for what they show us about two very important matters. We could say one matter is the diagnosis and the other matter is the prescription. So two weeks ago, we talked about the prescription. The prescription in Psalms 42 and 43 is preaching to yourself, talking to yourself. And I said then... That that skill of preaching to yourself applies not just to this issue of depression, but to almost anything in the Christian life. So we kind of treated that on its own, the prescription of preaching to yourself. But the diagnosis that's going on in Psalms 42 and 43 is depression. What these Psalms call being cast down or downcast or... What the NAS says is despair. 
This week I want to focus on that specific problem. It's the specific problem in Psalms 42 and 43 that brings the psalmist to that need for preaching to himself. So if you didn't hear the message two weeks ago, uh, the preacher wasn't so good, but the passage was, and you should listen to it. You should go online and listen to that message on preaching to yourself, especially as you hear this morning the diagnosis of depression, and we won't give ample time to the prescription of preaching to yourself. might seem like we did those in reverse order, but I thought it was fitting to do preaching to yourself first before we get to Clara, so you could have that in your mind as we're hearing about the uh, the cross-shaped Christian life for a weekend together with some guest speakers. Hopefully you were doing just that. But now we need to back up and think about what this psalmist was feeling and going through and how it relates to us. Remember, he asks the same question three times. Look down in your Bibles, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. Why are you in turmoil within me? And here's the preaching to himself. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's the diagnosis. He's downcast. He's laid low. He's crushed. And he talks to himself. He questions himself. Now, two weeks ago, I said that that question, why are you downcast, O my soul, is probably a rhetorical question. So there's really no good reason for why he's downcast, and he knows it deep down, and so he's saying to himself something like you might say, why do I keep hitting my thumb with that hammer? There's no good reason for it, except that you're not good with a hammer. But you might say, why do I keep doing that? The answer is, there's no good reason for it. Stop doing it. So I said two weeks ago, that's a rhetorical question. He's arguing with himself. He's trying to talk sense into himself. He's saying that despite the difficult circumstances around, he has no good reason to be crushed in his spirit. Well, I still stand by that, that it's a rhetorical question, but I don't think it's the only thing going on when he asks, why are you downcast, O my soul? Because some scholars view that repeated question, verse 5 of 42, verse 11 of 42, and then at the end of 43. They view that repeated question as genuine investigation, as problem-solving, as troubleshooting. He's like a doctor trying to make a diagnosis. What's going on? How did I get here? What went wrong? He's looking for answers, not just berating himself. I think both of those are true. I think both, he's asking the rhetorical question, why are you doing this? You have no reason to do this. And yet, part of it is probably also, why am I doing this? How did I get here? What went wrong? And if both are true, then I think, as he talks about this troubleshooting kind of question, it's fair for us to try to answer it. He doesn't give us enough clues to fully answer his question for him. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? He doesn't tell us everything we could, we could know of our own heart, our own life, our own experience, if we were asking that question of ourselves. But hopefully we do just that. We ask that question from time to time. What's wrong here? Why am I down? 
Why do I feel like God is distant? Why do I feel like he doesn't hear me? Why do I not have joy like I used to? How, can I, how come I can't sing to him with tears like I used to? So that's what I want to try to do this morning to answer the psalmist's thrice repeated question. At least answer the many possibilities. Now let me, let me qualify this up front. This is not a typical DSC sermon. It's not a typical DSC sermon because the answer is not right here in Psalms 42 and 43. And usually we stick to a passage, right? Usually we soak in it, focus on it. And we did that two weeks ago when we looked at this passage. But to answer this question today, why am I downcast? Or what are the possibilities for me being downcast? I think we need to look at Psalm 42 and 43 and other parts of the Bible and church history and practical wisdom. So again, not a typical DSC sermon. If you hear five of these in one year, you should switch churches. I'll just say that, okay? But I have a clear conscience because it's needed for us to try to unpack depression today. I think it's needed because, listen to these stats, depression disorders affect almost 10% of the U.S. population now for those 18 and older. The rates of depression are even higher than that among women, minorities, elderly, unemployed, divorced, so that's most of us in here, in one of those categories. Preschoolers are actually the fastest growing market for antidepressants. Do you know that? At least 4% of preschoolers in the U.S., over 1 million kids, are clinically, clinically depressed. Depression in children is increasing annually at the rate of 23%. And that's all capital D kind of depression, isn't it? Maybe you've never had that. Maybe you've never admitted that. How many more would never admit to struggling with depression to a doctor or to a pastor, but they still have seasons of quiet numbness, dryness, sadness, brokenness, senseless tears? So how do we answer that thrice-repeated question in Psalm 42. I want to give you ten possible answers. Then I want to focus in on one of the answers, the one that's most ignored, the one that's least familiar, possibly even unknown to you. And then I'll, as we have time, give some suggestions about what to do, what to do to fight despair. First question, then, is what the psalmist says three times. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul. Ready for ten possible answers? Well, the first is, perhaps, under the circumstances, that's an appropriate response. An appropriate response. At least temporarily. Maybe not for good. And cautiously, it must be, if it's going to be an appropriate response. Temporarily and cautiously, it could be the right response. Remember, we saw that two weeks ago in Psalm 42, that 
his anguish in many ways was understandable. He's a Jew who's in charge of temple worship. And he used to lead the, the worship parade on the way to the temple during the times of the feasts. And he's no longer there. He's someplace else. We don't know why. He's by the rivers of Jordan, right? He's near Lebanon. He's someplace else. He's on Mount Mizar. He's in Hermon. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not with God's people. He's not... not He's no longer leading the throng of God's people toward the house of God. And that's, it's a darn good thing for him to think that that's a bad thing, isn't it? Imagine the weird scenario that you are on a deserted island. You're Gilligan, but there's no Skipper, there's no Marianne, the Howells aren't there, no one's there. It's just you, Gilligan. And imagine Gilligan's a Christian, and Gilligan doesn't have church. Should he be sad? You betcha. He should be sad. That's right. He should trust God for this odd circumstance of being deserted on the island, but he should miss what is right and what is God-given. Sometimes it's right. The second possible answer, though, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? To say, perhaps there are physical, practical dynamics that need to be addressed. Maybe there's a physicality to this depression. We saw it last week. Psalm 42, verse 3, apparently tells us that he's not eating. His tears are his food, day and night. And if his tears are his food in the night, that means he's not just not eating, but he's not sleeping. Maybe that has sort of cycled into more depression, right? You're depressed, you don't feel like eating. You don't feel like eating, your blood sugar drops. You, you don't sleep, eventually your, your grumpiness grows, right? You, you don't begin to, you begin to not think so well. So consider that. Consider the place of sleep and diet and exercise and taking care of your body as part of the equation for fighting for joy and fighting against despair. Maybe it's a season of unusual busyness or stress at work. You say, yeah, it is, but what am I going to do? Well, some things you can't do, but some things you can do and maybe should do. Sometimes it's... Sometimes the answer, one of the answers to a sad soul is something very practical. Maybe it's your natural temperament or bent towards depression. And you should factor that in. Maybe you notice that there are some certain seasons in which you're more tempted to despair than others. Maybe holidays. We don't have this problem so much here in sunny New Mexico, but other parts of the world... Other parts of our country have many more clouds and much more depression. Doctors have even named it, right? It's a seasonal affective disorder, something like that. It's funny that it spells sad, the acronym. Spurgeon knew this. He said, he who forgets the humming of the bees, the cooing of the pigeons in the forest, the song of the birds in the woods, the rippling of rills among the rushes, 
the sighing of the wind among the pines needs not wonder if his heart forgets to sing and his soul grows weary. Are you watching for God's praise in his creation? If you're numb to those things, it'll be easier to be numb to truth and to be numb when we come together in singing. doesn't mean that the physical dynamic is the only dynamic or that that's the direct or only cause of depression. No, they're factors. It's like the physical dynamics are lenses through which everything else is darkened. You get the physical stuff wrong, and you keep getting it wrong. It keeps casting a shadow over everything. We lived in the UK for a while, and so we had a number of trips back and forth from the East Coast to the UK. And you usually do that flight, say, 10 o'clock p.m. on the East Coast here, which means you get there, I don't know, their morning, 6 a.m., 7 a.m., and unless you're great at, at sleeping on a plane and starting at 11 p.m., not at 3 a.m., uh, you'll get there and you miss the night's sleep. So Sarah and I had a saying that we learned eventually. When you get there, you go to sleep or else you're going to cry about something stupid. <laughs> and by the way, that wasn't me saying it to her like she was the only one that cried. We came up with that together because we both cried about stupid things. You can't get it open. You know, all right. You just got to go to sleep. Okay? There are physical, practical dynamics because body and soul are mysteriously interrelated. Third answer is to say that there are perhaps unwarranted and unfulfilled expectations. Ask yourself, are there unwarranted and unfulfilled expectations? That proverb in Proverbs 13 is such wisdom for everyday life. It's so descriptive of much of our experience that hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's what we're talking about this morning, heart sickness. Proverbs 13 tells us where it often comes from. It comes from hoping, not getting, not getting yet, and we're sad. Some of that's inevitable. And some of it's because we've set our hope on the wrong thing. Maybe you trust in the horses of fulfillment. Remember that in Psalm, I believe it's 33. We don't trust in horses. We don't trust in chariots. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do you trust in the horses of the culture, material horses, technological horses for your fulfillment? Maybe it's the pursuit of vain glory, being sucked into a black hole of self-focus. That's empty, friend. That's an empty pursuit. It is vacuous in there. And you will find it more empty the more you gaze into your own belly button looking for happiness and fulfillment. Or sometimes depression strikes right after the opposite extreme of circumstances when there's this high, right? There's this great thing. This just happened. And then 
Then what? What's next? You know you're not going to get another one of those highlights for another year or two or ten. And you're depressed. In short, depression is a clear window into what we trust and what we worship. If we'll look through the window and not fixate upon the window. You hear that? Don't fixate upon the window of your depression. You must look through your depression to see your idols. Fourth way of answering the question. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Is to to ask a question back. Are you in persistent sin and unrepentant? Are persistent sin and unrepentance involved here? Is there some sort of hidden sin that you keep giving into? It's a pet sin. You wouldn't give it up even if you got caught. You're not repenting of it. You feel a little bad about it, but you know it's, it's guilt. It's not repentance. It's worldly sorrow. It's not true repentance. If you're in that kind of state right now, No surprise that you'd be miserable, that your spirit would be downcast. It's called the conviction of sin, and it may just save your soul. Praise God that he won't let you be happy in your sin. Praise God for his discipline for you to feel anguish in your rebellion. That's a good sign might be the Lord's chastening as depression keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Conviction's growing and growing and growing. Time to listen up. Time to own up to it. A fifth way of answering is to ask another question. Maybe there's been a neglect of the means of grace. Has there been a neglect of the means of grace? Now, means of grace is in quotes there on the PowerPoint, because that's a theological phrase. And it doesn't mean justification. It doesn't mean conversion. Means of grace, it's referring to the Christian life graces, the ongoing grace that the Lord gives us. Like 2 Peter 3, he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Not just a gift, and that's it. There's a different kind of grace. You grow in grace. That's why Paul begins and ends so many of his letters by saying, grace and peace be unto you. If they're already saved, they already have saving grace, but they need ongoing Christian life grace. And so when we say means of grace, we mean Bible. We mean prayer. We mean the corporate meeting of the saints. On Sunday morning, we mean the Lord's Supper. We mean fellowship with other Christians. Are you neglecting the means of grace? And if so, that you'd be depressed is once again a good thing. The world isn't sad about not reading their Bibles. The world doesn't feel bad about not praying or being in communion with their father. Another way of saying this same question is to ask, are you neglecting his tools? Are you neglecting Jesus' prescriptions for your joy, for your 
perseverance, for your thoughtfulness. Remember that Psalm 42 and 43 spoke directly to that need for corporate worship. He's longing for corporate worship. He can't get to corporate worship. We don't have that problem unless you have soccer games on Sunday mornings. Are you hungry for corporate worship? Friend, you have no business pretending like you're perplexed about your depression if you're not giving yourself to the means of grace that were blood-bought for you by Jesus himself. Don't play. Don't play like we don't know. Or maybe the sixth question to ask back. Have you forgotten that the kingdom is now and not yet? Yes, the kingdom's here. But that doesn't mean that we're kings and princes. Get out the robe, put on the ring. Oh, I know that's in a parable in Luke 15. The prodigal son comes home and he, he gets to be honored like a prince. That's not the whole story, right? That's a parable. And it sums up the whole picture. It sandwiches together some things like being forgiven, restored to the father, and everything the father has have you forgotten that the kingdom yes is now in a spiritual sense in sort of a seedling way but the kingdom hasn't come in its fullness and so there's a sense in which sort of like the children of israel leaving egypt we've been freed from the bondage the slavery the pain of egypt but we're not yet to the promised land kind of like desert living it's kind of like what paul says in second corinthians 4 that we have the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay fragile earthen not fancy why to show the surpassing power in the christian life belongs to god not to us and then paul gives this list we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Hear the now and not yet? We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying in our own bodies the death of Jesus. His death is felt in our everyday living. Cruciformity. Right? The Christian life is shaped by the cross and suffering of Christ. Because he suffered, we shouldn't be surprised that we suffer. Now and not yet. 2 Corinthians 5 says, until heaven, we're going to feel naked. I've never been in public naked. But I would hate it. It would be awkward. And Paul says, that's a pretty good word picture for what it's like before heaven. We feel like something's not right here. Vulnerable, weak, scared. Romans 8 says we groan while we're waiting for the finality of our adoption. Don't forget now and not yet. Seventh, maybe you're giving in to doubts. 
Are you giving into doubts? Are struggles turning into questions and questions turning into doubts and doubts turning into bitter rebellion? Perhaps you're listening too much to the ungodly, like seems to be happening with Psalm 42, right? His enemies are saying, where's your God? And then five verses later or so, he's saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you're listening to yourself rather than preaching to yourself. Remember that from last time we looked at Psalm 42? Maybe you're doubting your salvation because you're too focused on you, not looking outward to the cross. Don't give in to doubts. Push against them with Bible. Confront your doubts. Certainly don't let them grow worse and worse. Eighth, maybe there's no good reason at all. No good reason at all for your depression. You just need to own that. That's where that rhetorical why of Psalm 42 and 43 comes in. Why are you downcast? You have no right to be. It doesn't make sense that you are. He's still here with you even if you're not in Jerusalem. You see hints of that in Psalms 42 and 43. Maybe there's no good reason for you to be in despair. And you need to own that and you need to keep saying it to yourself. And really we can take away the maybe at the beginning of that point, can't we? Because on one level we can say there's no good reason. If we're in Christ, there's no good reason. We need to own that. There's no good reason here. Read Romans 8 and tell me there's good reason to despair, to doubt. Ninth, not unrelated to anything I've said so far, not unrelated to the above, perhaps it is biochemical. The body's complex. Every new discovery demonstrates that there's something more out there we didn't know before. The relationship between the physiological and the psychological or spiritual is complicated. As such, I think we need what I would call a chastened approach to medication, to antidepressants. By chastened approach, I mean on the one hand, not thinking that the emotional or the spiritual aren't or can't be, at least in part, affected by brain chemistry. Some people may have chemical imbalances. Yes, I know there's still no definitive biochemical test for depression. To my knowledge, there's no test for low serotonin or malfunctioning neurotransmitters. But that doesn't mean, thank you very much, Tom Cruise, that doesn't mean that Brooke Shields didn't have something going on inside the brain, that there aren't low serotonin levels and that medicine can't help. A chastened approach, on the other hand, means not thinking that pills are solely the answer. Not thinking that pills don't have side effects, for one. Realizing that pills may help, but they may mask other issues. They may provide clarity through the window into life and cloud the window into your idols. By realizing that the latest stats put the effectiveness of antidepressants at 30%. 
the way you see the commercials on TV, you'd think it's 100%. It's 30% helpful. So let me get specific, if I may. I would suggest this. If you currently take an antidepressant, you must not let pills be the sum total of your fight for joy in your fight against clouds and despair. And if you don't now, but you're considering going on some medication, you should consider the many other possible causes. Consider all those physical, practical dimensions of diet and exercise and rest and sleep and work and stress and temperament. And even more so, work and work with someone, a Christian, a pastor, a good friend, to diagnose the spiritual dynamics that are going on. What are the spiritual habits here? What's... What's going on with the sin? How's repentance and trust in him? So whatever is going on in your brain, know that your depression is certainly not unrelated to everything I've said above. It's a, at the very least, it's a both and. So keep that in mind also when you're counseling someone in depression. Ed Welch, modern-day writer, wrote a book on depression, and he says, compassion, as we counsel people, cannot ignore unbelief or sin. Yes, have compassion on those you counsel who are in dark depression. But he says, too often, family and friends think the depressed person is very fragile and cannot handle any frank discussion about sin or hard-heartedness. But to ignore these issues when they are obvious in someone's life is to treat that person without love and compassion. There's one more reason, possible reason, that we would say, why are you cast down, O my soul? Tenth, maybe God has withdrawn the sense of his presence for a time. Maybe God has withdrawn the sense of his presence for a time. In the dark season of the soul, it may be that God, in his mysterious wisdom and goodness, has chosen to remove the sense of his presence so that we pant after him all the more. So that leads to the second big question you have there in your notes. I said we'll talk about ten things and camp out on one of them. It's the last one. Let's ask the question, has God withdrawn from me? And by the way, I know you're out of room there on your sermon notes page, but know that everything I say from here on out will we'll have uh, in a thorough blog post later this week. Don't worry about trying to write all this down. Every, um, all the notes and quotes will be on the website later. This is not an easily answered question. And I think that my answer can be easily misunderstood. So bear with me. Bear with me while we slowly pick this apart. This is that thing I said that's probably least understood, maybe even most commonly not known. Yes, I know there are many verses about God not forsaking his people, that he's near to his people, that he keeps hearing his people and never stopping hearing. Like Psalm 9, verse 10 You, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Or 27.10, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. 
implied? He'll keep me, not just take me in for a bit and spit me out. Or 37, verse 28, the Lord loves justice, therefore he will not forsake his saints. I could go on and on. There are verses all over. Just coming to mind right now is Joshua 1. Do not be afraid, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you, and he'll be with you wherever you go. It's not just in the Psalms. It's not just in Joshua. It was back in Deuteronomy 31. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Repeat it again, quoted in Hebrews 13. Or Jesus, the way he talks about it. He ratchets it up. John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. And then in John 14, he tells us two ways in which he won't leave us as orphans. One, he's coming back. And two, in the meantime, he gives us his spirit right here in our hearts. But notice that parts of Psalm 42 sound quite a bit different. Verse 1, would you look down? Remind yourself of that beginning. As the deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. It's like a deer who's panting for water. He gets to this brook, expecting water to be there, and it's not there. It's dry, and he's desperate. He's panting. Because he could die from thirst. So the psalmist thirsts for God like that. He can't get to God. Where's the water brook of God's presence? Of communion and intimate praise with him. So verse 4 of Psalm 42, he says, I used to praise him with great and glorious praise. He remembers the time of drawing near to God like he used to do. In verse 7, notice... It's the Lord's waterfalls that are falling on him. You see that? It's God's waves that have gone over the psalmist. God's in it. He's doing it. He's using it. And then verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Now, either this guy's dumb or more's going on here than you might first think. And it's not just here in Psalm 42. You see it in other places in the Psalms. Some seem to presume that God is forsaken. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, that's for Jesus upon the cross. Yes, Jesus quoted it upon the cross. It does apply to him. But David wrote it first in first person. It applies to David. David said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 42. Sorry, Psalm 77, 9. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Or other Psalms talk about God hiding himself. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And I could give you another 10 Psalms along those lines where God is either said to be hiding his face or seems as though he has forsaken or forgotten. Now, don't freak out. Don't think I'm going off the theological rails here. Consider that this issue could be a little more complicated than you thought. Some theological issues are. And realize that there have been others who have thought about these kind of verses more than you have, more than I have. 
In fact, there was one pocket in church history that thought about this issue, these kinds of psalms, the forsaken, forgotten, hiding your face from me psalms. They thought about these issues more than any age before them and any age since them. 17th century Puritans, also the Dutch Reformed guys of the same same century. They wrote many books dealing with this. They analyzed depression. They categorized different kinds of depression with a kind of minutia like only a 17th century Puritan could do. I mean, it's just remarkable to read some of this. If you're depressed, it's probably not the best thing to read. You're just going to get mad. You're going to get mad that they're this dissecting when you're just looking for honey under the tongue. But, but they were helpful, and I think we can learn from them. I think we need to learn from them this morning. They believed that there was a kind of depression, one of the kinds of depression where God sometimes, rather mysteriously, withdraws the sense of his presence from his children. He doesn't withdraw his presence. He withdraws the sense of his presence. Even good, even great modern books on depression written today, they don't touch on this. This is a forgotten thing. This is the benefit of having a preaching pastor who's a 17th century geek. You're welcome. I know this is mysterious. I know it's paradoxical. But let's ask that question. Why have you forsaken me? One real and true answer to that is, he hasn't forsaken you, dummy. There are all these verses. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. It's been repeated and repeated and repeated. And Jesus amped it up even more. You don't even know. But another real and true answer is that God has a dozen reasons or more why he sometimes withdraws the sense of his presence from his children. Let me give you 11 from Gespertus Vucius. He's Dutch, if you couldn't tell. He wrote a book in 1646 called Spiritual Desertion. That's what the Puritans called this, desertion. It's a bad name for it. It is, because it sounds like God deserts us. And they would say, no, he doesn't. They would clarify that. Listen to Fuchus tell us why God allows desertion. Eleven things. That we may be tested and so become better known to ourselves and others. Each one of these deserves meditation that we don't have time for. So I'd encourage you to go online this week, get the blog, see these, print them out, put them on your phone, whatever, and and really chew on each one of these. He says, God allows desertion. The desire for grace and glory may increasingly be strengthened in us. When we're panting, we're more thirsty. That hidden sins may be uncovered and future sins prevented. Sometimes depression stirs up new sins. Sometimes it buffers your lust down a notch, doesn't it? That you may be taught tenderness of conscience, sensitivity. That we may become empty and poor of spirit. In other words, humbled.
It tends to chill us out when we're depressed, doesn't it, in some ways? Remember Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Oh, we want him to be near, we just don't want him to be near to the brokenhearted. This is maybe one way in which God gets us to be brokenhearted so he can be near to us in the end. He says that we may be weaned of external, earthly joy and consolation. He says that we may obtain an aversion to this world and a longing for heaven. He says that we may learn to be fed with tears as the only delicacy of consolation when the comforter does not seem to be present. What? God wants me to be comforted with my tears? Oh yeah, I I can give you lots of verses. It's in the Bible. He says, and I think this is key, that we may cling to God all the more firmly. That the graces of God, indeed even the smallest crumb and tiniest feeling, would be all the more precious and pleasant to us. Because he doesn't remove his presence completely or the sense of his presence completely. There's much there. And what is there is all the more precious and pleasant when the sense of other parts of his presence aren't there. That the faint and thirsty soul may be flooded by a new stream of consolations eventually, inundated by an entire sea, and possess a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, when the comfort finally does come and his presence is finally felt, it's so much the sweeter for having known the struggle. The glass of water is so much more precious at the end of a desert run than it was in your air-conditioned living room in the middle of the day. Spurgeon testified that he had come to see that his depression, he struggled with it big time, it came over him whenever the Lord was preparing a larger blessing for his ministry. He said, the cloud is black before it breaks. He said, it overshadows before it yields its deluge of mercy. Depression, he says, has now become to me as a prophet in rough clothing, a John the Baptist heralding the nearer coming of my Lord's richer benefits. Amen. Christopher Love was an English Puritan, and he gave a few other reasons why God would do this. He clarifies for us. He says, God sometimes forsakes us, notice it's in quotes, that we may not forsake him. A tender-hearted mother may run behind the door of her child in a corner and hide herself, but it is not because she's angry with her child, but to try, to, but to try the strength of her child's love in seeking after the mother. Can you imagine telling your child at a mall, stay with me, stay close, you watch me, it's your job to watch me, and you notice they're not doing it? Can you imagine just tucking yourself behind a clothes rack and just waiting for them to have just a second or two of panic? I don't know that I've ever done that, but I would do it. You know, I don't think that's bad parenting. You could save their soul, uh, like save their body in a mall or at Disney World where they can get captured up quickly. We have to remember this. In depression, the goal is not the removal of depression. 
In depression, the goal is not the removal of depression. The goal is to know God through thick and thin. To know God through thick and thin. He desires to make us holy, not just emotionally healthy. Samuel Rutherford said, I know that as night and shadows are good for flowers and moonlight and dews are better than a continual sun, so is God's temporary withdrawal that hath some nourishing virtue in it. We shouldn't be surprised. Keep in mind, God has not given us all of himself at once, right? We know that there's more to come. We know he's holding back something of his presence every day. And we also know that he's not some sort of static reservoir just there for us to go and tap into. But it's all up to us. No, he is at work in us to will and do of his good pleasure. And some have a season right now of glorious presence. And some right now have a season of dryness. But he's in it. He's in the ebb and flow. There's not an ebb and flow to your responsibility to seek him. There's not an ebb and flow to his commitment to his promises or to the reality of his presence. But there is an ebb and flow to the experience of his presence. Be not surprised. Be not shaken. He means you well. So quickly, and I mean very quickly, let me just run through remedies. What shall I do? Prescriptions. Well, the answer isn't a change of scenery, change of circumstances. It's not in distractions, whether that be entertainment or drama in your life. It's not in achievements or busyness being on the go. No. God wants you to investigate yourself, to diagnose yourself, to do what you know, both physically and spiritually. Get off the couch physically spiritually pray take your trouble to him ask him for help ask him to show you give you his nearness and care and the experience of what you know to be true preach to yourself and here's where you insert everything I said two weeks ago insert it right here preach to yourself look backward to the gospel look forward to heaven and wait on him Because you don't know his timing. And you don't know how long this desert is. But you know he's good in the midst of it. He has saving purposes for it. So don't skeptically wait, but trustingly wait. And don't passively wait, but actively wait. Wait while you preach and pray and you look backwards and you look forwards. And then you repeat. Just like Psalm 42 and 43 did for us. Repeat. Because you never know what God's going to use. You never know when he's going to show up in might. But here's what we do know. Isaiah 43, a bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flaps he will not quench. Do you believe that? Say amen.